Welcome to Hell on Earth. This is Appendix One, Life. I'm Chris Wade. Matt Chrisman. So we spent a lot of time discussing the people of the 16th and 17th century, but mainly in the context of their political, religious, and military actions. What we haven't discussed is what daily life was actually like for these people, how they lived, how they worked, how they played, and how they related to each other, which is, of course, fundamental to understanding their world. Today, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Eleanor Yanaga to the show to do just that. Eleanor is a medieval historian, co-host of the We're Not So Different podcast, and author of the new book, The Once and Future Sex, Going Medieval on Women's Roles in Society. Eleanor, welcome to Hell on Earth. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to be doing this by kind of just going up the social ladder, uh, starting at the bottom with peasants. Uh, So I guess let's start with the most bare bones basic question. Eleanor, what is a peasant? See, you know, this should be something that more people ask because I think a lot of people think peasant is an interchangeable word for poor people, but uh, it's a farmer. It's a farmer. Yeah, I I found that out the hard way in the first essay I ever wrote in college (laughs) uh, for a medieval historian. Uh, So, yeah, and that is at this point in time about 85% of the European population, give or take. So as a general rule of thumb in the medieval or early modern period, if you're talking about Europeans, really what they're doing is farming, uh, just writ large. And we are kind of seeing some differentiation of this beginning in the early modern period, but more specifically over the medieval period, then 70% of the population are more are serfs, right? So they're not free. Um, and you know, unfreedom is one of these interesting things. It's not the same thing as chattel slavery, but there's all these like weird things on top of it. Like you can't just uh, marry anyone who you want. You got to like ask your landlord <laughs> if you can get married. Um, if you're sick of living in the village that you were born in, you can't just say, okay, well, I'm going to fuck off down the road. Like it, it doesn't work like that. So you are bound to the land and you're kind of seen as a piece of property, but you're living on a piece of land that your family has probably been farming for generations. Um, And for the most part, this is not the same sort of farming setup as we would expect to see um, at this point in time. Um, You still have a lot of kind of open farming at this point, which means that you live in a little village, probably. um, And then there'll be like a little village green where everyone kind of like runs their livestock through. So you can just kind of like put your cow out there in the morning and then you go to the fields. And then people farm fields kind of in strips. Uh, which are often called in English cellions. So you've got like your little strip and you've got your little house and, you know, you might have uh, various cottage industries that you do out of said house. Like in addition to farming, you might, I don't know, weave or sell beer. Or if you're a particularly good dairy farmer, maybe you also like make cheeses for the market, things of this nature. Um, But by and large, you are still kind of renting this thing. Like it passes down through your family, but you don't own it per se. You own rights to rent it, um, which interestingly is a uh, system that we still kind of have here um, in uh, in the UK because it's a terrible place. Um, but uh, like, no one else. It's like you inherit your lease from your parents. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, we have this thing here still called a leasehold where you like own access to a property, but not technically a property. And like, seriously, the people who own the leasehold can like still have rights to have a fair in your backyard and stuff like that. Like, I'm not even joking. I'm not even joking. So, uh, terrible place. Never come here. Uh, anyway. (laughs) Well, you know, it's bad here, but sometimes we do have to take, just appreciate that we did actually win that revolution, you Mm -hmm, know? mm Mm-hmm. 
you know, keeping the King of England out of your face is a good thing in general. I would say <laughs> that, but, but I walked right into this one, so it's my own fault. Uh, but uh, yeah, so you know, you you kind of got. You, you pay some money off to your landlord and what your landlord is really depends, right? Because it might be an actual honest to God Lord. That's true. Uh, but it might just as easily be the church a lot of the time, which explains a lot about why people are kind of head up. Yes. <laughs> it's like if, if the church in the first place is telling you, you know, uh, like how to bang, for example, um, and, and like your priest kind of doesn't live by any of these rules or, you know, even worse, a lot like your priest is never there. And you're a devout Christian and you're like, well, hello, I kind of wanted, you know, some some form of sermon at some point in time. That would have been great. And, and then they are also your landlord. Like, that's really going to rankle you, you know, and uh, and that's a huge thing. So, for example, um, in Bohemia around this time, the church owns about 30 percent of all land, which is a huge chunk when you, you think about it in terms of, you know, here's one of the most important kingdoms in the Holy Roman Empire. And it, the church is just like the landlord, like even more than the crown, even more <laughs> than like any one concentrated place. So there are these really complicated systems uh, that peasants are kind of working with, but also being a peasant can mean a lot of different things, right? So um, as I say, being a peasant doesn't necessarily mean that you're poor. So we estimate that about kind of, at least in England, about 50% of the peasant population are either like just straight up rich like about 25% of them are probably like rich. Uh, and that's what, you know, you term the gentry, like gentry class or like people who are technically peasants, you know, they farm, they aren't nobility, but they're rich, right? Like they've got some money. Um, then another 25% are kind of like middle class. Like they're doing pretty well for themselves. They, they might have businesses, things of this nature. Now the remaining kind of 50% though, they, they can be quite poor and it can get pretty bad uh, down uh, particular ends of it. But there's all sorts of different ways to be a peasant. And there are ways to kind of gain more land, buy more land, and, you know, accumulate more stuff underneath this system, for lack of a better word. Uh, but so, so you know, it all really depends because being a peasant in southern Italy, for example, is really different to being a peasant in what is now northern Germany. You know? Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to talk more about that in a second, but I do want to get into that whole like lifestyle variation thing here, mm. because I do think that, you know, in the popular imagination of the peasantry, uh, you know, there's kind of these waves of revisionism. And, you know, at one point, the, the idea is like, oh, peasant, when you think of that, you're, you're like thinking of a basically enslaved mud, mud farmer <laughs> who has like a 25 year life expectancy if they're lucky, uh, you know, mm. no teeth in their head, just like banging two rocks together. Now, I think largely because of some <laughs> internet meme uh, for yeah. reasons, there's kind of a revisionist of being like, no, actually, the average peasant had a bigger house and worked fewer hours and had more days off than the average American worker. So, I mean, you were kind of describing it with the describing that there was a variation in levels. Mm -hmm. But wh where are we in like the general lifestyle of the peasant revisionist seesaw? Yeah, so th this is kind of a really, this is a big headache. It, it feels to me like I made a monkey paw wish or something like <laughs> that because, you know, you know, I want everyone to not think of like medieval peasants as, you know, dirt farmers or whatever. But I didn't want them to be like, oh, we must return with a V. Mm -hmm. You know, like that, exactly. that wasn't what I was asking for. You know, so, so it's kind of, we're, we're, it's somewhere in between. It's nuanced, right? So yeah, sure, they have pretty big houses. And sometimes when you see some of them, it's like, well, damn, that's a, that's a very fine house. I'd love to have that, you know? But also... They don't have, for example, like concepts of privacy. So sure, that's a pretty big house. You sleep in one room. 
Yes. You know, like you're, you're having sex in front of your kids, right? Which is why you have like curtains around beds. It's not like, oh, this is romantic and we're being fancy. It's like you you want, this yeah. is your sex Any tent. amount of privacy. Yeah, right. Like, so so we're, we're setting that up, you know. Um, and, you know, at certain points in time, like if you're particularly poor or something like that, you might bring your livestock in if it's a really cold winter or something like that. And, you know, there are kind of backlashes against that famously, like Peter the Great when he builds um, – you know, St. Petersburg out in Russia. He's like, everyone get the cow out of the house right now. <laughs> like we're, we're stop it. We're being European. Stop it. Get that cow out, you know? And, um, yeah. but people do bring their livestock in at uh, points in time and especially baby livestock. So like if it's lambing season or your cow just had a calf and it needs, you know, more attention, you might bring that in with you. So you need the room because there's like unguents like, <laughs> you know, chilling with you. So, so that is true. Um, and then also like, please keep in mind that there's no such thing as central heating. Right. Like uh, by the time we're hitting the 16th century, you know, we've invented fireplaces now that have a chimney. Great. That's solid. Like love a chimney. Fantastic stuff. Because, you know, up until this point, fires are kind of like in the middle of a room and you, you sort of do everything around the centralized hearth, which is a nice way of heating things, but not a great way of getting smoke out of your house. So, it is, you know, you do kind of have uh, lung conditions come up. Uh, rather a lot um, as a result of that. And that's that's kind of something that we are aware of. Um, in terms of the free time thing, because that's something that gets brought up a lot, I think this is important to talk about because it's a, it shows a really different way of thinking about work, right? Yes. Uh, because, you know, it's true. There's a lot of, like, feast days. There's a ton of feast days, right? So, for example, this time of year in, like, February, you're not really expected to do very much when you're a peasant because it's, like, it's snowing or, or whatever, you know? Um, and... There, but there are still, you know, certain things that you need to do. Like someone's got to feed the chickens, right? You know, you, the cows still need to be milked. There are all sorts of things like that that are happening. Yeah, you basically get all of Christmas off, and Christmas is like months long, right? Like Christmas starts on the twenty fifth of December and it goes to Candlemas in February. Sure. See, and, I've always see this is the thing that I've always thought is like that actual Christmas should be in like the middle of February because mm. you have the new year's to be to anchor your December holiday. And, but you need something in the middle of February that uh, has as much of a, a celebratory atmosphere to really get you through the winter. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, this is why they, it, it's so long for them because you know, the winter just kind of sucks and it's like, ah, I don't know, man, like have a party. So they're having yeah. a lot of parties and that's sort of, and, and that's absolutely true. Right. But the point is there are all these ongoing chores that are not necessarily work like that's not your job but you've got to keep the fire going so go out and chop some more firewood you know you've got to keep these animals alive you know you're cooking you you have to make your own bread and then bake it in the fire in the middle of your house you know it's not like now where when we have free time that's really you know sure we have to do chores and stuff and obviously that sucks but you know imagine if like the, the chores were and, you know, you have to you have to take your laundry manually down to the river, like scrub it all out and then bring it all back. Man, it, it, you know, while, while it's sopping wet and it weighs lo loads of pounds, you know, there's so much more everyday work that people forget about. And so, yeah, like, OK, your landlord can't demand that you show up and plow his fields on those days. Great. But there's still the everyday work that happens that is so much more difficult than the work we now have. Um, having said that, they do party. They do be partying. Um, and uh, a great place to kind of uh, look at how peasants have a good time, and they do, um, is to go and have a look at um, early modern paintings. 
And there's a lot of really cool ones um, out there that will kind of show, you know, peasant parties, peasant weddings, uh, you know, people dicking around at uh, festivals and things like that. And those are really accurate. Um, and they give you an idea of how there is this really cool sense of community. And when, you know, there is a party at Easter, you know, everyone's got tables out in the town square and they're having a little jig and someone passed out under the tree and someone's playing a bagpipe. So they're, they're like, there's cool stuff too. And there certainly is, there are advantages, right? To a pretty communal lifestyle and stuff. But do I want to trade places? <laughs> no. And, and also like, there's a whole other thing to be said about like being a woman in this time too. It's like, yeah, cool. Like that might be nice if you're a dude, but when, you know, the expectation of you is you're just going to be like a baby machine, right? Like stuff stops being cute really fast. Right. So let's talk about those social ties that you were just alluding to, because, you know, in this series, we've kind of outlined because it's necessary for the way that we're telling the story, you know, the, the role of the church of like anchoring as the anchoring social institution for most of society uh, at this time. But, you know, what does the uh, like social and community life of a, a peasant look like here? How much are they individualized into family units? How much are they collectivized into, you know, the people around them? You know, what, what does, uh, what's the social schedule of a, pe- of a peasant? Yeah, so a lot of family, <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of family and it's, and to be fair, this was kind of the way that society was organized really up until kind of like the industrial age, right? When it's necessary to have a kind of single family unit in order to have workers as, you know, automata that can be moved around from factory to factory. So in these circumstances, things tend to kind of really be all about the husband's family, right? So like when when a woman gets married, off she goes and she lives with her husband's family. Um, and quite often you will live um, either in the same house as your husband's family or, you know, kind of like on adjoining properties. Really common to kind of be like next door to your in-laws, not necessarily in the same house until, you know, things are kind of like people are quite advanced in age. Sure. Right. So like when when, you know, your mother in law is 80 or something, which is something that extremely happens. You know, people live in their 80s in the Middle Ages all the time. Um, then she was probably going to like come in, live with you and you will look after that. Uh, a lot of kids. there's a lot of children all around there and you know your cousins all live in the village and you know everybody kind of uh, like bogs in together so um, you know when you've got this kind of extended family everywhere you're sort of a little bit related to everyone right and so the the meaning of family can be really kind of varied here because there are kinship ties all over the place and Um, I also assume with not so much geographic mobility mm, that you find yourself in these complicated family structures that go back generations in the same few square miles. Oh God. Yeah. You know, and you you can understand why people at times are just like straight up. Like I'm trying to run away physically to the city. Like get me out of here. Cause you know, it's, it's a fishbowl. You're around like the same people that you've been around your whole life. You're related to half of them. Everybody kind of knows your business. That's the downside. Ah, yes. Right. So it's like, you know, it's, it's all cute when you're having a party. That's great. But you know, when it's Tuesday and someone's like, Oh, you know, Jan's put his pig out in the street again, you know, too early. And hey, my kids are playing here. You know, <laughs> things like you know, like that. It, it yes. stops being cute, right? Um, so there, there is kind of like a, a lot of overlap there. Um, then you know, you do have a kind of lot of stuff that goes on also with the local church that is a real anchor of how society works and how things get done. Because you know, obviously, you go to church every Sunday. In the first place, uh, but also religious things kind of act as a real form of entertainment, which is that's something that we don't really grasp now uh, is that people people really like religion. 
<laughs> like like a lot. And so, you know, um, people are really into sermons and stuff. And if like a wandering preacher comes through your town, you're like, hot damn. Like, I'm, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to hear this sermon. And this is going to be like really great. And like, oh, this is fire. This guy's spitting, you know, and, and like that. This is like a thing. So there'll be all these kind of uh, people who kind of go through. And it, it's not just necessarily like itinerant preachers, but, you know, a Franciscan might show up one week and he's doing like one particularized thing, you know, and it's a really big form of entertainment for them. They really, really like that. Um, a form of mobility that they do have is um, they do kind of move around in order to go to market and stuff like that. So really common that you might go to a big market town or you might go to fairs. You know, a lot of people are selling wool, especially in uh, Northern Europe, which is like basically the entire European economy is is based on wool. Yeah, um, we've so, mentioned that yeah. in regards to uh, to England, what <laughs> oh, I yeah. believe in another episode, uh, Matt describes England as basically a petro state for wool at mm-hmm. this time. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. And it's, it's uh, you, you know, but this is one of those things like if you were in the field come rain or shine every day, you also would like a miracle fiber that stays warm when it's wet. Right. Yes. So, you know, like you, you kind of get it in a pre-modern world. But, you know, they'll go to town. You know, maybe maybe you go to the champagne fairs, which surprisingly and sadly do not sell champagne. They sell wool. I know, right? Like you hear it, and you're just like, oh yeah, baby. Oh, yeah, that sounds like, great. I'd love to yeah. go to champagne. Guess what? No, it's more, more wool. wool. Mm, more yeah, wool. No, no, yeah, it's just wool. Um, so there's a lot of that. Um, but people go on pilgrimage a lot too. And you know, maybe they don't get to go on one of the big ones. You know, what you really want is to go to Jerusalem. Failing Jerusalem, after that, you want to go to Rome. Failing Rome, you want to go to San Diego de Compostela in what is like now Spain. That's another big one. And then it's like, uh, if you're a normal person, you just go on to like one of the ones that is close to you. So, you know, Canterbury, if you're English. Yeah. We'll go to Canterbury, you know. I mean, we talk about this in the Martin Luther episode that, you know, the the uh, lector of wit in Wittenberg was trying to develop this reliquary at the Wittenberg cathedral to be a pilgrimage destination, basically mm-hmm. a tourist attraction. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, Charles the fourth uh, pulled this off for Prague uh, in the 14th century, like big time. Like he just, he goes around on this tour, does this big thing of like, yeah, you be the Holy Roman emperor. You show up to people's houses and be like, I heard you have a relic. And they're like, do you want to see the relic Charles? And he's like, Oh, I would love to see it. And then they're like, Oh, Charles, do you want the relic? And he's like, Oh, oh, I could, oh, but it'll be, it'll be wonderful. We'll take it back to Prague. And like, he gets the church to make a special feast day and a special pilgrimage for going to Prague. And it works wonders. It's just like, everyone is like, fuck yeah. Like they're going to Prague. They're seeing all these like crazy relics that he's got. And so that's what's happening in Wittenberg is they're like trying to steal Prague style. Yeah. Uh, so. I want to just, just get back to one of the things that you said about uh, the church's entertainment, which I think helps mm. kind of make sense of, how the Reformation spread as this mind-blowing event is the purely through the democratization of preaching as an activity leads you to have so many different, honestly, entertainers available to you. Now that anybody can get up and do it, it basically allows the most charismatic person in your neighborhood to suddenly be your new preacher. Yeah, exactly, which is why the church doesn't like it. Yes. Right. <laughs> so uh, preaching huge, you know, there's all these people who who are doing it for ages. And, you know, even before the Reformation happens, when you see really big reform movements, especially in the late Middle Ages, it's usually around preachers. So, for example, that's what the Franciscans do. That's what the Dominicans do. Uh, when the mendicant orders are brought up, it's like, oh, well, that's the thing they do is they go to they go to cities and they preach. And it's like, oh, that's fantastic. By the 14th century, everyone hates them because they're really, really rich now. So that you have like other, you know, this is how you get this is how you get lost. Alerts, you know, like this is how you, you get the, these various guys uh, who, who go around doing the same thing. Um, 
And then, you know, this is kind of one of those doors that Martin Luther opens. Um, You know, when you say that, you know, personal spiritual growth is something that can kind of like be put forward by anyone. It's quite funny because I I don't think that Luther quite understood what he was doing when he opened the store because he's like, yeah, but everyone's going to be like a a nerd like me, right? It's it's, it's just going to be like all, yeah, Yeah. but but then suddenly like every weird little guy (laughs) get up and and give a speech, right? We didn't get to get into it uh, in the Luther episode, but when Luther is is uh, huddled away to the to the castle by uh, Frederick the Wise and Wittenberg is sort of left leaderless. These three dudes show up called the Zwickau prophets, who are just three guys, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just show up and they're like, "Hey, you know what uh, Luther said? Let's take that even further. You know that that let's and they had that like radical social vision, and they start stirring up Wittenberg uh, in this radical direction." And Luther is stuck in this castle frantically writing letters like, get these fucking guys out of here. What the hell is going on? What are you letting happen? Philip, Philip, what are you doing? He's like, oh, but I don't want to I don't want to confront them. It's it's so funny, right? Because this is is sort of a pattern that you see over and over again. So, for example, like in the 14th century, when flagellants show up uh, where where they're like, okay, well, I'm going to hit myself in order to stop the plague because God hates us all. And that's why he's killing us. Right. And everyone is like, love a flagellant, love all this, you know, and like this is, and this is like a, a great form of entertainment. It's like, go out and see the guys like stripped to the waist <laughs> and then beat each other. And everyone is like, this is great. Love that. Then they start preaching and the church is like, okay, all right. I do not care for this. Like it's, and this is what happens over and over again. Is that like lay piety on these excessive scales is fine slash encouraged until you think you have something to say, right? And then it's like you're off piece. It's like you're doing like church fanfic and they don't, they don't appreciate that. Right. So. Yeah. So uh, there's actually been people arguing that feudalism never really existed just because that makes us think that there's like one system that predominated in this entire geographic area. When in fact, you know, you have a bunch of different arrangements in different areas. So what are sort of the, uh, the regional distinctions in like the broader feudal uh economic landscape in relationship to like how peasants relate to their landowners. Yeah. So a, a big thing that we're kind of using now um, to take over from the term feudalism is more like manorialism, ah, right? Because it's like, like, yeah, you know, you're, you're probably on a manor, right? <laughs> like that, that, that's probably the case. And so, you know, from the peasant's point of view, I'm not sure if it makes all of that much difference, right? Because fundamentally you're not free. You live on some rented land somewhere and you've got a landlord, right? That's, that's definitively true. But everywhere you go, the setup is slightly different, you know? Um, so for example, there is the possibility, uh, like one of the things that throws up the idea of feudalism is like, Sometimes the king of England is, you know, the vassal of the king of France because oftentimes the king of England, you know, owns like Rouen or like Aquitaine or like, you know, something like that, you know. And then there and then so sometimes you've got to like go down and be like, OK, king of France, yeah, you know, and, and you've got to like bow and scrape and do all of these things. But in England, that doesn't matter so much anymore. And, and that isn't that isn't quite as important. Um, you know, when you use the term feudalism, people kind of tend to think that it's just like, uh, for example, what was happening under the Carolingian Empire, right? If you say uh, feudalism, the thing that just springs into everyone's minds where it's like, okay, well, the king gives power to a local guy and then it's kind of like a an exchange wherein that guy gets to rule this particular part of land, but then he has to give... Uh, you know, guys to go to war to the king when requested, but the king has his own laws. Like, that's the kind of textbook thing. And that's kind of, that's true if you're Charlemagne, right? But everywhere else that you go, there are real struggles 
between uh, the nobility and royalty a lot of the time. Um, so, you know, you can have pretty immense power if you are noble in your own kingdom. And, you know, people like to, you know, jack off about Magna Carta all the time here, for example, but it wasn't particularly new or interesting when it came out. All it did was reinforce the traditional rights that nobles had here in England. It was just the first time anybody wrote them down. Right. And, and a lot of it is just about fishing weirs. It's really dull. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's not an important document. Uh, like it being a, an important document is something that the founding fathers came up with in America. And they're like, yeah, like just because I'm like a noble to shut up, man. No, you're not. Like it, it doesn't do anything for anyone. All, all it does is be like, well, barons are quite powerful, aren't they? The king can't tell them what to do. Right. You know, yes. and, and the reason that needed to be written down is because you've got Normans who are running England now, right? And here's all these English people who are like, homie, that's not how we do things here, right? We, we've got more power on a local level than you necessarily do in France because, like, the French are sort of, like, the first ones to ever do it, like, in the having, like, a real centralized idea of being, a, like, a, a country, like, you know, being French or whatever, you know, like, they, they're the ones. Um, so in England, a noble guy has a lot more power. Um, and you'll see this come up over and over again. So, for example, my guy that I've already mentioned once, uh, you know, which for Czech reasons, uh, Charles IV, um, when he's the king of Bohemia, he attempts to, like, codify a lot of power underneath the Bohemian throne and take it away from the nobles who are quite, quite powerful there. Um, and he loses this legal battle so badly when it comes out that he then pretends that the laws that he wrote got burnt up in a fire. <laughs> and he's like, well, I guess they got burnt up. So I definitely didn't get owned. Like, please, please don't tell anyone I was owned. Right. So there are these constant, um, you know, attempts on the part of loyals to loyals uh, on the part of royals to take more and more power underneath them and kind of enact what we think of as feudalism, but it doesn't really exist. And then, you know, in places like the Iberian Peninsula, baby, all bets are off, right? <laughs> because it's like, who owns what at what time? That is 100% not what's going on under the Muslim kingdoms at all whatsoever, which enjoy, you know, a much higher degree of bureaucratic uh, kind of oversight of their lands. Um, really um, a lot more... Um, interest in taxation and varying levels of taxation uh, based on who you are. So, um, you know, uh, if you are living in Granada, they're, they're quite interested in, for example, like attracting Christians because they're like, someone's got to come here and pay Jizya, right? Like we need, <laughs> we need to bring taxes. Can we get some Jewish people in? Oh my God. Like, you know, this is, this is what we need. Um, and then, but then, you know, some Christians might show up and take over at any point in time. And then they're going to give away some land to their friends. And, you know, there's people like El Cid who are playing all sides and, you know, like the, what an army is down there. Who, who knows? Like it, it just depends day to day. So everywhere you go in Europe, it's going to have a slightly different system. Um, and that's why it's cool. Right. Like this is the cool thing about yeah. medieval and early modern Europe is that it's it's wild. Like it, it really depends on what you're talking about and when. Right. Everybody's trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I want to move on to uh, the city life in just a second. But uh, our series really covers Europe from about 1518 to about 1688. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I, as you just said, it changes everywhere. But maybe if you could say broadly, you know, what is changing for the life of the lowest social order over that time period. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that's quite interesting is right around the beginning of this period, we just kind of seen in the 15th century, suddenly you have a big jump in wages 
for, for average people. People tend to think that it happens right after the Black Death. It doesn't. It takes kind of like a couple of generations after the Black Death. Because, like, let's remember that about 25% of everybody's died, right? Huge drop in population. So there just aren't enough people around there. And, like, if you're in Italy, it's more like 50% of the population, you know? Um, so eventually everyone's like, because we're going to have to, like, pay these peasants more money. And we see prices go up uh, for, you know, average people and their work, which is cool, but it takes like 80 years and then it ossifies, right? So suddenly we have this class of people who were kind of thinking, oh, well, stuff's getting better. This is cool. Like I can kind of expect that my life might improve somewhat and, you know, maybe things are going to kind of go up in incremental steps, but instead that's frozen again. And people are not happy about that uh, because they know that it's possible now to kind of ask for this thing. Um, you're also coming out, uh, well, not even coming out, but this is a period when there are lots of peasant revolts. Yes. As we, a result we of We mentioned well. many of them throughout, throughout this um, oh, our series. Those are my boys. I just love it. Uh, you know, every time, you know, a peasant is like, that is it, and picks up a pointy stick. I'm just like there yeah. with them in spirit. I absolutely love them. So there is also this idea that, you know, perhaps – Actually, there isn't some kind of divine right that keeps these people in power and maybe I could go poke them with a stick, right? And like, granted, sure, maybe you, like every time pretty much they get, unless you're like the People's Republic of Dithmarchen or whatever, <laughs> then like you're, you're pretty much going to get your ass kicked. But it's worth a shot is kind of how a lot of them are looking at it. But one of the big things that happens in this period is a huge kind of swell in the urban population. And a lot of that is as a result of an expansion in mining, um, yes. which another is, thing that we have touched on in the main series. It's sexy. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. Uh, mining, mining is cool uh, and neat also. So, you know, you, we find a lot more silver. There's a lot more tin mining that goes on, a lot more iron mining. And that happens to be great when there suddenly become new processes uh, for making metals. And it's like, oh, well, phew, got some steel now. It's exciting. Yes. You know, you know th- things like this. So you have new places for people to kind of go looking to make money. And granted, not every single serf can run away or, or whatever. But, you know, if you're somebody's third son or something like that, you, you can kind of dip, right? Like, you know, there, there's going to be a, like a lot less questions are kind of asked of you. And especially if, um, you know, you have a lot more land that is being conglomerated under like a couple guys. They tend to like take their eye off the ball. Um, and like, you know, for example, the church isn't as good at keeping an eye on where everyone is as opposed to like some local knight, like a local knight might have a lot more idea of who he owns. Right. So you could run off to one of the mining towns in the German lands or in the Czech lands or something like that. And you could start making bank. Right. And at the same time also, because we have urban expansion that's happening as a result of all the mining, well, that means more people are needed in cities more generally. And you know, it's, you know, people use the term unskilled labor. I don't like to use that, but you know, someone's got to build all those roads. You know, someone's got to build the houses. Um, Oh, you like churches? Do you local rich guy? Who's going to build the church? Like, you know, how do you get stonemasons in? So we're starting to see a boom in cities. Now I don't want to like over egg it. it. We've only recently got to the point where more people live in cities than in the countryside. You know, most people are still hanging out down in the countryside, but there is this movement towards urbanization more generally. And it starts to be something that an ordinary person might think could happen for them. And that means that you come into contact with all the stuff we were already talking about, like cool preachers, new ideas. We've got a boom in universities as a result of this. Printed so it's like, word. you know, yeah, like Wittenberg suddenly, like, okay, 
Like that's not Paris, right? So this is a great transition then to talk more specifically about city life. But before we move on peasants, I have to ask one more question that uh, is pulled from the way that people talk about uh, peasants online right now. Uh, does a Dorito have enough flavor to kill a medieval peasant? <laughs> So um, I absolutely love this idea, but uh, medieval people actually have really, really flavorful food and it, it would probably kill us uh, because <laughs> it's like, probably flavors that we, we would not, we would not put together. Like, do you know what a, a lasagna was in the medieval period? No, but I would love for you to tell me they're like sweet and they involve raisins and cinnamon. Uh, this is like this is what, like what white people get criticized for bringing to the barbecue. Yeah, it's like you know because tomatoes don't exist yet, right? Yes, but, exactly. So, yeah, but it's, so but Italians in, in, have so much pride about the tomato sauces they didn't get that shit in, for, until like five hundred years ago. Exactly, but so, yeah, they love spices, and and for them, like spices are a flex. So and you know you be flexing too, where you're like. This came from Indonesia. Got nutmeg. I got nutmeg, right? And so they're just throwing nutmeg in everything. (laughs) And so, you know, when you look at medieval recipes, you're like, okay, you know, like it's probably incredibly flavorful and I don't really want it. So (laughs) I'll just put it that way. I'll give it a try. Okay. (laughs) So with that detour uh, taken care of, let's move back to what you were just talking about, where these uh, ambitious third sons go, Mm. the boom in city city life around this time. So uh, just kind of, you know, you were talking about these mining towns. You're talking about, uh, you know, places like Prague uh, that are collecting people. Uh, let's just start from like kind of a basic level. Like, what is the quality of life in a, uh, a city right now? What are these people like doing day to day? I know it's obviously going to be a lot more diverse than just farming, but you know, what 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 do you, is the picture that you would like people to imagine about you know a day in a early modern city? Yeah, so for for something to be a city at a time, we have like these rules about like what makes a city. It's like you don't get to be a city. Like you need walls, uh, you need a cathedral, um, you need uh, mixed commerce. That's like one of the really big ones. Um, and so, and and this kind of tells you a, a lot about what we expect in a city. So, um, the cathedral is important because it means that it's a place of church bureaucracy. Um, so, you know, if you've got a bishop, it means that, like, basically canon law is, is taking place there. Now, if canon law is taking place there, you need a lot of high flutin guys to go and, you know, argue about whatever. Um, and so there's a lot of very well-trained up members of the clergy who are hanging out. Other things that you're going to see are just, yeah, a lot of uh, commerce. Um, and so, you know, you, you can't say industry because it's not industrialized, but commerce, certainly. Um, and so, you know, here in London, like I'm in, I'm sitting in the city of London proper at the moment. And, you know, our streets all around here are kind of like named after what went on there. So it's like a stone's throw away from me. We've got Leather Lane where all the leather goods sure. were sold. Um, and you've got like, you know, Cock Lane, which is where you go. Well, no, sorry, I messed up there because Cock Lane is where you go for brothels. Uh, it means <laughs> penis. It does not mean rooster. Uh, but there's like Poultry Street where you go for poultry. So don't fuck that one up. Right? <laughs> like don't get, like, get it, get it right. Um, so you see a lot of things being uh, bought and sold uh, and created um, a lot of trade. You know, London is obviously a, an exception because it's it's quite big. So there's a lot more trade and a lot of things coming in and out by boat. Uh, but that's basically true of everywhere is there will be a cool stuff that's coming in, you know, like I said, from Indonesia. You know, like you'll have it's not unusual, for example, uh, for artists and artisans who are usually uh, posted up in cities. If you work in a big manuscript workshop, for example, um, you'll be using like lapis lazuli in order to make blue. Uh, which has come to you from Afghanistan, the only place on the, in the world that it comes from. So you'll have like exotic stuff from all over the world, and that's really cool. Um, you still have all the stuff that peasants like, but you got more of it. 
So lots of churches, like, and you've got your own parish church. There's going to be someone yelling about God down down in the square right now, and people love it. Like, I can't stress enough how much people like <laughs> sermons. It sounds so uncool, but they love it. Um, so you have a lot of that. But then you also have stuff like, uh, so for example, uh, here in London, theater. Uh, you know, uh, theater is kind of seen on par with sex work, hilariously. They're kind of like, what's an actor and what's a sex worker? I can't tell the difference between these two people. You know, and like, we, you we know. get into it in the in the main series a bit. You know, the theater becomes kind of like a culture war of the day about like mm, whether or not yeah. it's going to be permitted, especially during the uh, English Civil War uh, mm-hmm. era. God, and the, the, those losers. There's such a bunch of nerds. I hate them so much. But in, And here then also what constitutes theater is really loose. So, for example, where Shakespeare's Globe sets up is like right next to the bear baiting rink sure. where people go and like torture bears for sport. And there isn't really an idea of like going to see Romeo and Juliet is different to like poking a bear. Sure. Repeatedly, everyone is like, "That's a nice night out." What do you? I know what about? I'd rather give my shilling for. <laughs> right, exactly. So, and then there's the, there's the bear baiting and there's the bull baiting. So, like, don't worry. There's there, and they've got separate theaters for both those things. It's like, <laughs> it's like having like your football stadium next to like your baseball stadium. Same thing. Um, and so you know you do have like you know fine living like that certainly goes on. Um, you do have stuff like restaurants. Um, and you do have stuff like uh, markets where you can go get food. And if you live in a city, you're a lot less likely to have your own kitchen. Okay. That's that's like a thing that goes on. You know, like the reason that London burns the fuck down, you know, in the 17th century is because, you know, stuff catches on fire really easily in this yes. period. So you, so you might not like be baking in your own house. So you might go out to eat or like have people who deliver food to you. And that's pretty cool um, and exciting. Um, modern uh, DoorDash. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a lot of that. Like you, you would have people who will just like come up and be like, oh, yeah, here's cakes or whatever. Um, but then also a thing to keep in mind is that the idea of houses in cities are really different then. So like a household or a house in general is oftentimes what we would think of as like, well, that's like four houses or something like that. And, uh, you know, you would kind of like come in through some gates. There'll be a centralized courtyard and then a number of buildings around it that are the house. The household is not just the family who lives there. It's everyone who works for them. So if you are, for example, in a guild, then like, you know, and you're an apprentice, you're a member of that household, right? And so is the cook. And so is, you know, whoever's scrubbing the floor and here who, whoever is just kind of like going in to do the day, day to day, right? Like whoever curries the horses, you know, like these are all things that happen. And so you have huge groups of people living in really big houses and they have a lot of money. So uh, there are there are poor city people for sure, but guilds have a lot of money. They've got a lot of power um, and they do really interesting things. They travel a lot and they've got really good ideas about what's going on in the rest of Europe, which is absolutely key in this period. So I did want to ask more about that kind of like how, you know, we talked about the church as a structuring force in, you know, kind of country life. Uh, how these guilds kind of act as a structuring force in city life and how they run as basically, you know, their own miniature governments within the city and then affect the city government itself. Yeah. So I suppose the way that I always say to think about a guild is they're somewhere between a union and a protection racket. Right. <laughs> sure. Right. So, so like on the, on the one hand, they do something really good, which is they make sure that people are getting paid a fair wage for, I don't know, being a mercer, right. Making yes. And they also set up like, um, Oh God! What's that thing when you get paid after you retire? Uh, uh, yeah, they pensions? set up pensions. pensions. Yeah. yeah, they set up pensions. Mm-hmm. They have like you know early like insurance schemes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Basically, all the things that you need to live a 
partially financialized life. Yeah. And they sponsor and, masses uh, for your dead relatives. Very important. Yeah, they absolutely do. And it's, and they have their own, they have their own chapels in the churches where those masses get set. So, you know, uh, you, so you know that like you get those get out of hell free masses if you're if you're in the guild and that's really cool what's not cool is that you know it means that if you happen to be a particularly good weaver you can't just move to the city and be like well i'm here to weave everyone will be like the fuck you are right and there are only so many ways into a guild the first is to get born into it so it's like your dad's in the guild okay well then then you you're in the guild that's that's basically how it works um the second is that you can apprentice in um, and, th- and that's kind of like the most common way. And, and then, of course, like apprenticeship ordinarily, you kind of like your parents give some money towards that. The amount of money that, that they give lessens with the length of the contract. So for so, for example, if you go in for 12 years, they don't have to give very much. But if you go in for seven, then they probably have to give a lot more because, I mean, you're essentially an indentured servant or whatever. Um, then you can just buy your way in. So, you know, say you've come over, say you're moving to London and you've come over from the low countries and you've just got like a whole stack of cash. I'll be like, welcome, you're a Glover. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't, I absolutely, that's totally fine. Um, and you know, now you can join a guild because like they said so or whatever, but now guilds are ceremonial, but they still exist. Like they're, they're all around. They own a lot of the city of London still for example, this stupid fucking place. Uh, but it's, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Like sometimes so then, I like that and sometimes I don't. You know? <laughs> Depends. So then, you know, we're talking about this cities as these nodes of commerce as, you know, one of their most important functions. Uh, you know, and we'll move on and talk more about like the highest level of society in a moment. But, you know, how, how does a city function as kind of an intermediary between the mass of people who are living in the countryside and the very top elite of, of the society? Mm, yeah. So because they've got a ton of cash which is certainly, you know, a fantastic thing, but they're still common, right? Um, So they do have some political power, especially in the really big cities like, you know, like Paris or Prague or London or whatever. So, for example, London has a mayor, and uh, the mayors are pretty much always guild members. <laughs> like that's that's how it works, you know. And, and there is some kind of election, but you know, uh, you have to be a citizen of London. And you know, to be a citizen of London, it's not just living here. It's like you know, you've got to have enough money or whatever. You know, like you, you have to have property and that sort of thing. So why the mayor exists in most cities is to specifically kind of speak for guilds to whoever. And um, one of the big things that they do as a result is they lend money to the real elites. So, you know, for example, oftentimes they'll be forced to like lend money to the crown and they understand that that's going to happen and they can kind of negotiate power as a result of it. So Londoners have like a ton of freedoms that people in even other important cities like um, Norwich is a a huge city uh, in kind of like early modern slash medieval England, but they don't have the same, they don't have the same power as London because they just don't have the same amount of money. Um, so one of the things that they absolutely know is that, okay, so we, you know, lent the crown this many thousands of pounds. And so that means that we can extract particular rights as a result of that, you know, so freedom of movement or, uh, you know, ability to use the land around and outside of London for various things. Um, How many eel jetties we can set up in the, uh, Oh yeah. The they love an e- oh, they love an eel jetty, mate. Yeah. Absolutely mad for it. Um, and, or things like they can, uh, you know, negotiate tax breaks. Uh, and, and things of this nature, right? Um, so, and they set up banking conglomerates and and that kind of thing as well. So they do have a lot of power because they've got financial power, and that is you know incredibly 
important. Um, so they are they are really kind of like you, you know we still use the term here in uh, the UK of middle class. And when I moved here, you know, like being a, a girl from Tacoma, right? I was all like, <laughs> you keep saying middle class, but these people seem like they're rich to me. And it's like, oh no, well, middle class means that you're rich. It means that you're not ennobled. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Right? And then so like, like, that still literally exists here. Uh, but th- there's this kind of legacy of like, oh yeah, well, those are the guys with the money, but they don't have, um, y- you know, the same the same privileges as a member of the nobility will have. Even if a member of the nobility might be poorer, they, you know, can go talk to the king on their own, whereas a Londoner needs to send the mayor. So one thing that's interesting is that you have, you know, these cities that are growing in, in, in leaps and bounds, but uh, people, the newcomers are not immediately made, uh, assumed to be citizens of these, of these cities. Uh, citizenship is something that is uh, very much, guarded by the uh, existing people within cities. And so you get this situation where there are uh, people who live in cities but are not accounted the rights of citizenship of being uh, people in the city. Yeah, so a lot of the time, this is a time thing. So, for example, if you can stay a year and a day in a city, then you will be counted as a free man of the city. That was certainly true of London. Um, And sometimes that timer is basically like, we know you ran off. (laughs) <laughs> right. And so, so if you can make it a year and a day, it's always 366 days, then you are allowed to continue to stay. And it also depends on who you are. So, for example, it's one thing if you're a man and you show up and they'll kind of go, all right, well, cool. Here's some labor. That's fine. Women in particular, people are like, I don't like this at all when women show up. And there are often laws in a lot of cities where it's like you have to within a week be attached to a household if you're a woman on your own uh, because they're like, what are you doing here? Is it sex work? You're doing sex work? You're doing sex work? Like over and over again. Like that's the, the, the presumed thing. So you need to basically show up and like become a maid like now stat, right? If, you, if you're if you a woman. And, and that is a real dangerous position for women to be in. Huge payoff. If you can make it work for you, uh, because there there is a lot of money to be made, uh, it, it, like individual single women can, um, if it works out for them. But also, interestingly, like people do move around a lot. So you find all the time in early modern and medieval Paris, there's English people down there constantly. Like English people run off to Paris and it's like, oh, yeah, I was I was born in Southampton, but here I am. Bright lights, big city kind of deal. <laughs> but, you know, nobody thinks they're Parisian. They're like, oh, this is just like another another one of those English people who's kind of come over here to work. And generally speaking, if you can stay there for a number of years and then marry somebody and establish a family, that's when people start going, well, all right. <laughs> but because you, you kind of have increased numbers of people who are moving around at this point. People start getting antsy because you have large amounts of foreign people kind of show up in the cities. And it's like, who are all these Dutch people? You know, as time, you know, carries on, you know, you'll have, I don't know, Huguenots show up in London. And everyone's kind of like, I kind of like this because I don't like Catholics, but I don't care. They're French. But they're French and they're taking over the clock making industry. (laughs) Stuff that we would just like never consider. Right. Um, But, you know, it sounds pretty familiar to to me, you know. But then, of course, there's like huge numbers of English people who are over in like the Netherlands and right. like that. Never, no one ever thinks about that, right? But you know, so the, the people do move around a lot. Um, you know, then it, like quite famously, you got a lot of German speakers showing up in places where Slavs are like, "More are you, huh?" 
Okay. <laughs> you know, and like that's, uh, huh. and you know, there's a real class element to that in kind of like the Czechoslovak and Polish lands. Uh, like, you know, Germans show up and they're like, well, I think you'll find that I'm a fancy boy. So now I live in your city. You're going to learn Polish? No. Oh God. No. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do, you know, you know, th- this kind of thing happens rather a lot. And, you know, in the mining towns that starts to rankle. Because, you know, they're like, woohoo, we finally have an industry. Everybody, like, look at us. We're mining. And then it's like Germans are like, no, I'm, I'm going to be doing that. You go be a Slav elsewhere kind of deal. So you, ha- you, ha- you start to see these um, real clashes of kind of early nationalist thought and ideas about nationhood um, in particular kind of spring up at these flashpoints around, you know, who's moving in, who's taking advantage of the fact that there's now more money splashing around, and who gets to wield the power of the moneyed in cities. Uh, So you touched on this a few times, uh, but I'd like to just take a moment to really drill into it because it becomes very important in the very end of our series, uh, kind of the unique nature of London as opposed to other medieval cities. It's the largest city, or medieval, early modern cities, it's the largest city uh, in Europe, and it collects the most you know, diverse types of people, and then it ends up being the birthplace of a few or of the kind of eth- economic system that will come to dominate the globe. So could you kind of speak to what makes London unique in the 17th century and you know, maybe do a little uh, compare-contrast against, say, Paris, the other mm. largest city, Catholic, more tied to the French monarchy, you know. Yes, this is a really interesting thing, right? Because who would have thought London, right? It's it's really interesting now. You know, I I say this sitting in London, right? Um, You know, everyone kind of thinks that London was always important or, or that England was always important because of how incredibly powerful London is. And that's just not true. Right. So like London is really powerful and London is really rich, but nobody cares about England. It's like, oh, baby. Like, like you and your sheep, ah, oh, bless you. You know, it, it's kind of like, it is, you know, like a petrochemical state where it's like, I mean, we'll take your money, but like, you're not quite people, you know, this sort this sort of thing. And it was always in the medieval period, Paris. Like, like just without a doubt, it was, Paris was the one. I mean, maybe you could give Stee's points to Rome just for being old, but like it had really collapsed pretty you know, like, and so unless you're the church, nobody really cares. Like, no taking one's apart to, the dang Colosseum to build houses. Yeah, like, no one no one cares about Rome. Like, you know, everyone is sort of like, well, Florence, maybe. Venice, yeah, sure. But, um, so what London manages to do really well is this banking thing. So in the first place, you've got this system that's already set up with the mayoral system, with this understanding that you are kind of allowed to do business pretty freely, here and pretty undertaxed comparatively. Now, there are certain occasions when, you know, the king may insist upon some things and, you know, really screw with people, uh, but not every king is a jerk. And most kings tend to understand that the real power that keeps them important is London, right? So they're making rather a lot of money and they're rather far away so it's like you know the french attack them occasionally but it's not it's not the same as like i don't know being in the kind of like german or french lands and there's like a kind of some an army marching by every yeah, you day you can just walk something. there yeah like that's not going to happen right if you want to take over england you really have to make a point of it right um they also are quite good at boats because uh you you need those 
right? And, and boats are the fastest way to move around in this period. So whereas on land, you know, really with a horse or whatever, you can only kind of do about 40, like max 50 miles a day if you're really pushing it out and you're like going for a change of horses to a change of horses, like doing some Pony Express shit. Um, otherwise, it's moving things around by boats and boats are fast, right? And so because English people have to be good at boats, they are good at boats. And because English people were already training really extensively, like out of London with, for example, the Hanseatic League. You guys have done the Hanseatic League? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought I heard love that. the Hansa yeah. Cities. Oh, mate, I love them, right? But it's like, you know, sure, Visby's one of those. And I like to go on holiday to Visby. Very pretty, very picturesque. They got money in that period and then never again. But London, <laughs> yes. you know, what they do is they pivot really nicely. And they're like, oh, well, there's all this money sloshing around from the wall, what are we going to do? And they set up, you know, these banks, um, you know, debt sharing things so that they can go into more commercial ventures and kind of go around looking for other things. Um, and they do a pretty all right at playing politics. Uh, like they punch above their weight a little bit in terms of who they are. Um, you know, they hate France, obviously, and then they hate the Habsburgs and things like that. But, you know, they, they do a pretty good job of kind of like eyeing the church up until like the last minute and then being like, OK, well, that's it. We're Protestant. We're Protestant because Henry VIII is horny or whatever, you know, and, and then that saves them money as well. And that's a kind of like influx of cash. And then that kind of the other really profitable places at the time, like the Netherlands, are like, oh, great. Well, I love that because I love to be a Protestant. Don't you love being a Protestant? Here, have some money. Right. And. The Dutch are the ones who are doing really interesting things like going to the Far East and like bringing back a lot of stuff. But the banking is happening through London with them. So they might have the porcelain or whatever, but the money stays in London. And that's kind of the thing. So really, it, it can be argued, and oftentimes I would, is that the thing that really sets London apart is the financial system. It's not like necessarily, you know... Well, wool's important. I'm not saying that wool isn't important. I think I've made that clear. But, you know, it's what they decide to do with it. You know, they kind of look at Venice, and Venice is doing a really successful job of this, and they're like, we could be the Venice of the North. And, you know, they managed to do that. So, fair play, I guess. Well, That's we'll, why I'm here, right? That's yes. why we're all speaking English right now, is yes. because of this, which is weird. Uh, well, we will actually be getting more into the financial innovations in depth next week, but let's move on to the last rung of our social ladder. Uh, court, royals, nobility. Um, obviously, the, uh, the, the top of the heap of this time period, the guys that we were talking the most about throughout the series are the Habsburgs, Spanish and Austrian, so I feel like we'll be pulling most from them, but... Um, just in general, you know, we want to, as with all of the other rungs, it's just like, how, how should we be thinking about court? I think one of the things that has come through this series is that at the very top level of these governments, you have the royals, their family, their court, which is basically a system of professionalized friends yeah. of the king and his family, right? So could you describe how, how this is working at the very top levels? Yeah, so it's really wild because they do have jobs. Like, it's a job being a courtier, and the jobs are esoteric let's right. put it that way right so say you're a lady in waiting to the queen and, and i'm not making this up one of your jobs is going to be like when the queen gets married you go sit under the table next to her feet just i don't all day know. or during the wedding yeah or during just... during the feast it's just like and they're like yeah got two duchesses under the table you like that <laughs> uh-huh Mm, and, and, and basically what you're saying is like i'm very fancy indeed right like i you can tell that i'm fancy because of all the fancy ladies that i've got around. and 
there, and this is an interesting thing is this is this particular job for women and it's a big job specifically for women. And this is what damsels are. Uh, it means like damisella. And so it's kind of like a women in the house and like being a professional, well-dressed woman in the courts, a job. And you do stuff like embroidery, but you're also just a house ornament where it's like, it's a flex. Like, oh, look how many, look how many well-dressed women I can afford to keep around. But you also then do like missions for, for for the queen or whatever the queen is like I need you to go down to to you know Anjou and like deliver a letter and they'll be like okay you know and, and off they go and um, so there's a lot of kind of like scheming back and forth and like women running around everywhere with notes it's wild um, but you're also just like a form of consumption right like where it's just like conspicuous consumption so that that happens for men you have obvious stuff which is like war like that's, that's the big one um, they're all, they are all loaning money to each other, all of them. And like, that is like, they, they are their own kind of banking system, which is kind of one of the ways that London manages to get ahead of things because it's like, well, you don't have to ask the Duke of York for money. Now it's like, well, you could ask the city instead. And it's like less of a come down if you don't have to ask another member of the nobility for this. And of course, like they're all extracting money out of peasants, like, you know, and with their rents and, and things like this. But they might have a little sideline and things like maybe they particularly produce. They might own, for example, breweries. This is like a really big thing is like to have a, a really fancy brewing house or um, vineyards. Like if you're quite fancy, you might own like land in France and be like, got a vineyard. You like that? You know, so th- this is like a big thing that happens. So they do kind of produce things and trade things. They might have side things in terms of trade, but mostly it's just politics and friends and hanging out and playing the lutes. And like writing poetry and they, they are all partying the whole time too. So a big kind of thing that's happening here is um, partying really excessively, showing that you know how to party and that you can then also keep in mind what it is that the king asked you to do and getting that done. But also being like the first to come and last to leave at the party really recommends you. It's, it's kind of like frat boys, but they have a job. It's right. really interesting. Um, So yeah, like... Uh, I don't know. They play a lot of tennis. They've got this weird kind of tennis. Yes. The, uh, the weird indoor tennis mm-hmm. thing that they, they played. Yeah. Which I've tried to play. It's, it's actually like basically really hard. Pickleball. Was that the deal? Did yeah, we reinvent like, that shit with pickleball? Yeah. It's, it's basically the same. It's really heavy. The, I, I tried to play it and I was not good. Let's put it that way. But um, yeah, it's so they, they play a lot of sport. They hang out and they, they wheel and deal. I guess it's kind of like the equivalent of like doing business deals on a golf course. Right, yes, but all like very formalized in a, mm-hmm. in a weird way. It's like the energy. I mean, at least this is what I have gathered from it. Is like, yes, it is this life of of performed leisure in mm-hmm. which the way that you perform it is also how power gets traded. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I I think the thing to kind of keep in mind about it too is that there are all of these kind of rules which are constantly being upgraded and changed. Right. So, you know, it, it is traditional, a lot of this stuff, but what the tradition is, is kind of constantly changing. So by the time at the end of this period, you kind of get to Versailles, they, like this is just absolutely 
wild, right? That, that isn't something that would have been happening in the 16th century. But there's, they're always adding another layer on to kind of justify why court is there. So it's like, yeah, you've got the girls under the table and you've got this and you've got the hand washing that'll happen. And, you know, everybody goes to church at the same time and looks the at each other. chamber pot and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, and like fighting over like, oh, I get to go into the king's bedroom. Oh, yeah, well, I get to, you know, you know things of this nature. But that's always being added onto and it becomes more and more performative and larger and larger as the early modern period progresses. So it's like, in order to justify the fact that they exist, they're constantly making new rituals, right? And they have to burn more uh, burn more money in the process. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. The, the surplus has to be destroyed uh, through uh, consumption, uh, which, mm. of course, is one of the things that fuels uh, the Renaissance. Just all these guys like, okay, what can I... What can I spend money on? Paintings, uh, nude sculptures. Good. Here, make that shit for mm-hmm. me, please. Oh yeah, and and so you know there are some cool things. Like as a result, like I'm a big fan of a nude sculpture. Great, that's <laughs> that's fantastic. Keep that up, everybody. But you do have this explosion of you got to spend more money in order to justify this power, and so. Uh, as a result, you know, the kings are constantly like, quick, get more power underneath me because how am I going to be able to, how do I, I got to keep all these fancy bitches happy, right? <laughs> so it's it becomes this kind of like perpetual motion thing where you have to bring in more and more and more to feed this highly stylized ecosystem. And of course, the Habsburgs are like the number one epitome of this because also everyone is like, how did you get that much land? Like, it's just sort of, like, absolutely crazy what Charles V is dealing with. And suddenly it's, like, one family who everyone was just kind of making fun of the whole time because they were just, like, Swiss robber barons suddenly owns the continent. Everyone is like, oh, no, this does not seem good, right? You know, so they get to spend a lot more money, but they've got a lot more problems as a result. But they've got the best court. But which court are you talking about? You know, all all these sorts of things. Maybe you could talk specifically about the characters of the Habsburgs. And obviously the later ones get real weird but you know <laughs> from you know we're just talking about court as this kind of like professionalized party basically but the Habsburgs in general uh, especially during this period uh, strike me as mostly especially the Austrian ones you know our, our Ferdinand strike me as mostly uh, pretty dour and serious mm. and you know pretty obsessed with their role as like you know defenders of the faith so uh, you know what do you make of the characters of some of these like Austrian Habsburgs and and their Spanish cousins? Yeah, this is the thing is that the early Habsburgs, like if we're talking about Ferdinand or if we're talking about Charles V, like they're not having fun with it, <laughs> like at all. They're like literally God is testing me is the way that I'm experiencing this. You know, this seems awful. And to be fair, you know, I wouldn't trade with Charles V. No thanks. Like no, I'm, he seemed pretty miserable. Yeah, really thoroughly miserable. And sure, he can speak seven languages or whatever, and he's got a lot of land, but he's got problems with, like, the, you know, the Barbary Corsairs on one hand and, like, you know, trying to keep Vienna together on the other. And it, and, and he's always feuding with Francis I, and Francis I is like, no, you can't come through my land. No, take a boat. Take a boat to Milan. Oh, you know, like this, this kind of thing. So, um. These first Habsburgs really, when they accumulate this much power, part of the reason why they accumulated this much power is because nobody took them seriously. And so, you know, because until they came along, uh, the Holy Roman Imperial Throne is an electoral position. Traditionally, what you would do as one of the prince electors is you'd be like, who's the weakest family? Like, and then get them in. Yeah. And then, and then it'd be like, this isn't going to cause me any problem. Like that's how you get the Luxembourgs. Cause they're like, yeah, sure. The Luxembourgs. And then they're like, Oh no, like this guy's quite good. And that's it, it happens with both Charles the fourth and Charles the fifth is there. Everyone is like, yeah, get this. Ah, hell they're quite good at this, you know? And then you have, you have all of these problems. Um, so 
then there's just, you know, this confluence of factors of, you know, the right people die and here you go, the Habsburgs own everything, right? So these guys are just like, this is a test from God. There's Protestants everywhere. I am literally being asked to keep together God's mission on earth and his ideal for what the church and the Holy Roman Imperial throne, which exists in order to, you know, keep the church going, right? Like, this is this is something that I need to do right now. And when they're being beset on both sides by Muslims, and, you know, there's a fracturing of the faith within, if you are a devout Catholic, you can understand why this, why this would be experienced this way. Now, when you get towards, like, the end of the period, when it's like, oh, well, we've given up on Spain now. Whatever, you know, like that's that's no, not something that I don't need to worry about. And, you know, well, I guess Protestantism is kind of like we're not going to win that one. Yeah. Then you then you get, you know, the Habsburgs who are kind of like, well, I don't know. Mm, going to invent elaborate laws about how I can torture people. That's what we're going to do. You know, so, <laughs> like they, they, they come up with some weird ones um, at the end. Uh, but they got to make do, your own fun somehow. I know they love it. They love that torture. Like, oh, OK, so, um, you know, they they do quite interesting things, but like, you know, to say that someone is a Habsburg can mean very many things because there's such a huge family. There's a lot of cultures <laughs> that, that that can mean something about it's like, Oh, are you talking about, uh, you know, the Escorial or are you talking about Vienna? You know, and they basically make Vienna into, you know, the, this huge Imperial city that it is today. Um, you know, they, they do all these cool like urban projects, which, you know, I've really, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying the, the fruits of Habsburg labor whenever I go on holiday, right? This is fantastic for me. But they, it just kind of depends on like, you're flipping a coin, right? Are you going to get one of like the religious Habsburgs or are you going to get one of the partying Habsburgs, right? And it, it's, it is one of those things. I guess kind of the final question here, you know, we're talking about core culture. We're talking about the character of these guys. I think then the question would be like, how does the court and the royal family translate into an actual bureaucratic system of governance at this time? Like, could you describe how, uh, you know, these royal families are actually grasping at being heads of state in some way? Yeah. So, you know, all of that partying and everything, as I was saying, you know, one of the things they do is they make new rituals. But one of the things that they also do as a result of it is they start to make governmental cabinets. Right. And so this does a couple of things. In in the first hand, it means that kings can have a better idea if they so wish about what's going on in the business world. Right. So you will make a little uh, cabinet who are like your financial ministers and then everyone they have a look at what all the business is and then they come and report to you and you can put your court favorites on, in the financial positions. And so like everyone's going to kind of suck up to you and, and try to strive to be on these various cabinets. So as a result of this, one of the big things that we see is a move towards professionalized armies. So, you know, because you, who knows if you're going to need to go start a war with Francis the first at the drop of a hat, right? Because he said something about Milan. So, you know, you're going to need to start having somebody who's looking after the army. What do you mean the army? Oh, well, suddenly armies exist, right? It's not just like, you know, some guy, the, the dudes that a guy knows. Yeah. You don't it's just, like, you're not just, starting the phone tree down the line and seeing who, who, who answers, you know? <laughs> exactly, right? So you, you start to have professionalized armies. And then one of the things that happens with the result of that is like, oh, well, if we've got professionalized armies, we're going to have to have enough taxes to pay these guys. So, 
all right, okay, here's, we've got more professionalized tax guys who lick in on that now. Um, you will have people who are more specifically like the agricultural cabinet, right? And they're suddenly, the king is paying a lot more attention to what it is that peasants are producing, right? Not just his peasants, mind you, like not the ones that are working on like the, the royal demesne, but what is our agricultural output altogether? What are we trading with other countries? And just this idea that there might be within your kingdom a trade output that can be attributed in some way that the king has an idea of it is incredibly new. Because before it would just be like the king is like, yeah, well, whatever you trade and then I'll, I'll tax you and then we'll, we'll figure it all out, right? But what by the time you need to be this fancy, you need to have all these guys that are making sure the money comes in so that you can be this fancy. And that's how you kind of like get the beginning of the early modern state. So you take all of like the medieval stuff that already exists, but make it bigger and then kind of like much more minute. So there's more guys looking in on it at every single level. Great. Matt, do you have any uh, any questions? Uh, I guess, yeah, just to wrap it up, uh, what what's like the, the grind set of like an early <laughs> modern so- sovereign? Like you're, you're doing your TikTok to show like mm. the day in the life about how I how I got this view and how I'm keeping it. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So a big thing that they're going to do, like their TikTok is paintings, right? So it's like, they're all like, get Titian in here. Like, oh, like at just uh, 7 a.m., I'm on my horse, you know, <laughs> and, and this kind of thing. So, right. They, they, and they do this. They, they have these really amazing propaganda programs where they're like getting, you know, the painted a ceiling, painted a ceiling, everybody. You like that, you know, um, building new churches, y- keeping an eye on things like that. That's, that is a big part of it. Is this, you know, kind of putting yourself forward as a sovereign in this way. And yeah, being like, oh, and then I I check in with my financial officers. They're doing great. You know, this kind of like moving through, this kind of being seen to be involved in the day-to-day running of the kingdom is a big part of it. And then they're like, went to chapel, love you, God. You know, like it's, it, they, they do this. And it is in this incredibly conspicuous way to be seen to kind of be important, right? And also to be seen to deserve it. I suppose because there's a lot of questioning going on at this point in time. You know, like every time a peasant picks up a pointy stick, they are like, "Uh oh, <laughs> there's a, like this. This isn't looking good." Uh, that that they've come up with these ideas, and you know, this is a world in which the way that secular power is wielded is kind of up for grabs, and you maybe can grab a lot more than there used to be because of this reshuffling of like what it means to be a Christian, who owns what land. And so kind of like getting out there and being like, I don't know if you're Henry VIII, like, and then I confiscated all the church's lands, gave it to my homeboys, you know, like these things really mean something in terms of a, a propaganda movement and that's a big part of their grind set is making sure everybody knows that they were in the gym for 6 a.m or what have you right like uh, and uh, interestingly sometimes they do like really talk about their exercise regimens this starts to be a thing where they're like you know if you're henry the eighth and you joust all the fucking time like there's there's meaning behind that right Mm -hmm. so um whereas that used to be just kind of like oh he's a fancy boy and he spends all day jousting and i hate him for it it starts to be like oh well when you have professional armies and stuff like oh well he understands military power doesn't you know things like that so all of this has meaning all of this is a show and all of it is a way of proving that you deserve to be where you are it really is the process of building a state at this time really is a fake it till you make it uh type uh, thing where they're like (laughs) 
It is as important to display that they are the type of guy that would be a king as actually being a king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like I, it, this is a very chicken and the egg sort of scenario, because if you couldn't do it or you didn't do that, you were simply swept away, frankly. Mm-hmm. Which is why we see uh, such an interesting person in like the character of who we'll get to in this, who we talk about in the series of, say, a Charles I in England, who mm. is beset by all these physical and emotional uh, issues and struggles his entire life uh, and eventually fails at uh, being seen as the type of guy who should be a king. He was simply too fancy. Wrong kid know? died. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, everyone is all like, you're out here with your wig. What, what's going on with that rough? You know, at least your dad had the the the, the decency to write a demonology. <laughs> you know, right? Like, what is it that you're doing other than probably being a secret Catholic? And he's like, uh, I'm also having sex with my mistress rather a lot. Does that count? I'm like, no. So, you know. Well, this has all been great. I think that, this will really help give our listeners a, a clearer view of uh, what these guys were up to day to day, other than uh, killing themselves at Nerdlingen or whatever. <laughs> Eleanor, is there any other, you know, just before we let you go, is there any other like big misconception about uh, this era or, or any final thought that you would like to leave our listeners with about, uh, you know, the, the life in the early modern age? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things to just kind of consider is that now we kind of have a real mocking attitude towards religious people um, because, you know, we know about germs. Well, we we killed know. God and we were living yeah, and, and we, in the yeah. post-world. And, you know, and good for us. Like, I'm a big fan. Don't get me wrong. But um, I think that it's really important not to just assume that all of these people are really stupid because this is, you know, a form of entertainment for them. They are really into God. They have real personal relationships with the idea of the divine. And this is something that matters to them. This doesn't make them stupid. And in fact, a lot of the time, these guys are incredibly intelligent. They're just working on a real different wavelength than we are. And I don't want us to kind of write them off and just say, oh, well, this is all silly and superstitious. You know, you've got to come and meet them at their level. Um, And it's cool to do that because they are a bunch of weird little guys. And actually, like, you can kind of get into the preaching and stuff, too. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? Actually, let them cook. Yes. You know, when some of these guys are going off, I'm like, fair enough, man. So, yeah, like, don't don't let that turn you off of history and don't let it make you think that we are somehow better than them. I mean, to look at how people, how worked up people get talking about, like, TV and movies uh, today. <laughs> and it gives yeah. you a sense of how, like, if you if you can take that kind of stuff seriously, you know, mm. and, and if the religious world is not only your entire entertainment life but also literally where your soul is going to go when you die like you could get why it shapes so much of the mentality at least that's one of the things that's come through uh from myself immersing uh myself in this period yeah you know like you got to think about christianity as kind of like at this point in time the marvel versus dc thing for us exactly you know all right well this has been wonderful thank you so much for stopping by if there's any is there anything else that you would like to plug uh, no, for me, like the, the, the book and the podcast, those are the main things. So, well, those links will be in this description. Uh, thank you so much. This has been great. We'll be back uh, next week for another appendix, uh, in which I believe we will be talking about, uh, finance and economic innovations of the period. So nice. See you all next week on hell on earth. <laughs>